A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. The 1980s were plagued by a string of rapes and murders carried out near train stations in and around London. Fear spread to commuters throughout the country. DNA analysis had yet to become standard practice, and the perpetrators, sly and elusive, left investigators increasingly desperate to crack the case. Just how many cases are we talking about? Well, at the moment, uh, we are now talking about three murders and uh, a number of rapes are possible. We've looked at something in the region of about 27. It would appear that uh, the main connection um, is the railways. Uh, all these incidents have taken place adjacent to railway lines. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 11 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. June 1982. A woman reported to police that she had been raped by two men close to Hampstead Heath Railway Station in North London. She did not know the men who had attacked her. They were strangers before that awful day. With a population of nearly 7 million people in London at the time, it was hard to know where to start. Initially, there was not much evidence to go on, and it was years before DNA was introduced to help identify perpetrators. Unfortunately, investigators could not decipher who the rapists were, and the crime temporarily sat on file. They would soon learn that the Hampstead Heath attack was not an isolated incident. Similar crimes all near train stations were carried out throughout the following year. In total, there were 18 separate assaults and attacks reported. It is worth noting that the accurate tally of rapes is underreported, was likely to be much higher. The names of stations surrounding Hampstead kept appearing in victim statements when two men wearing tracksuits repeatedly committed their terrible crimes, each as brutal and involved as the other. Many other locations outside Hampstead were reported, including Richmond, Kentish Town, Brent Cross, Highgate and more. 
the perpetrators went so far as Watford Junction and Hadley Wood. It seemed almost impossible to find the suspects or know when or where they would strike, but as their acts were violent and ruthless, the duo needed to be found and fast. By the end of 1983, something unexpected happened. As fast as they began, the rapes appeared to have stopped. What was the reason? Had the perpetrators moved, gone to prison, or were the most recent attacks simply not reported? However, the reprieve did not last long. At the beginning of 1984, the stalking of women at train stations began again, though this time things were different. There were no longer two men. Most of the women who were attacked reported a lone assailant. This was not the only change. The span of the area where the attacks took place was expanding. 1984 was proving even more complex than 1983 for the officers trying to catch the rapist. Despite the changes in how the crimes were committed, some things stayed the same. All of the evidence uncovered by the investigators suggested they were dealing with one of the pair who carried out the earlier rapes. On his own, this one man was even more prolific. In one night, three separate attacks were carried out on unsuspecting women. The locations were 20 minutes apart, and it appeared the culprit was travelling via train from Hampstead to Hendon. Following one of these attacks, the survivor worked with a sketch artist to provide an image of her assailant. It was released to the public, and in the drawing the rapist's black sunken eyes look out from an unshaven face. Unkempt straight hair ended at the nape of his neck. The hub of the police investigation was set up near where some of the assaults took place in West Hendon. It was named Operation Heart, a code name which referred to some areas of the crimes, and a squad of detectives who labelled themselves the Rape Team. However, despite a coordinated effort by the police, things were about to get a whole lot worse. Nineteen-year-old Alison Day was on her way to keep her fiancé Paul company while he was working overtime at Fairway Graphics, a printworks. Paul was an assistant copier, and unfortunately there was an issue with the machinery, which meant it was his job to stay behind and fix it. Alison had rushed out of the house she shared with her parents to avoid missing the bus. She only had to walk about 300 yards to the bus stop. After that ride, she was going to catch the train. At that time of year, the nights had already drawn in, and it was bitterly cold. Alison boarded a traditional Red London double-decker bus for the ten-minute journey, which headed toward Romford train station, where Alison disembarked. For the next part of her journey to spend time with Paul, Alison had a 20-minute train ride to Stratford in East London. It is believed she was at the station just before 7pm. Alison was seen and spoken to by a ticket inspector when she asked for directions. She had never travelled to where her fiancé of two years had worked before. Alison boarded the train for Hackney Wick on Platform 1. Paul had estimated she would arrive by 7pm, as they had discussed the matter in an earlier phone conversation. However, Alison was running late, having to wait for the train from Stratford to Hackney Wick for 15 minutes. The station and the train were absent the usual commuters. It was possible Alison was the only person taking the journey that evening. It was the first Sunday after Christmas, 
December 29, 1985. Many people would not be working overtime or were even at work. The weather was bleak and cold. The last patches of snowfall were on the ground and the air was crisp. She would not be on the train in that eerie silence for long. Her stop was the first en route. Alison had got so far as the station. Now all she had to do was find Paul's place of work. The area around the train station had many factories and warehouses, but most of the staff working over the seasonal period had long gone home. Alison was alone, the only person to get off the train at Hackney Wick Station, but Paul's place of work was so close, visible from the platform if it were light, and he was expecting her. She began to walk, protected from the cold, in her brown sheepskin coat. It was a short walk away, just five minutes on foot. As Alison was making her way to see her fiancé, two men in a white van had a different plan for that evening. They had visited surrounding train stations in North London, looking for a lone woman. The time of year and the temperature meant they had checked out several sites before finding a victim. Paul waited for Alison, but she never arrived. The two men that had abducted her feared she could identify them. On that cold, dark night, Alison Day's life was taken. It would only be with the passage of time that details of her final hours would be revealed. 17 long days after she went missing, Alison was found very close to Hackney Wick Station. An underwater search team recovered her body face down in the River Lee, next to the train station. Stones had been loaded into her clothing to weigh her remains down. This was the first indication Alison had met with foul play. Another was the blouse she was wearing had been cut off. One piece was used as a gag, another as a restraint to tie her hands, and a third was a tourniquet. That last piece of information was not released to the public at the time. Her heavy coat was pulled from the water separately from Alison's body. She had not been carrying much money, only enough for one way of her train journey. For investigators, there was little else to go on. Detective Chief Superintendent Charles Farker was assigned Alison Day's murder, with a view to closing it down, because any useful evidence and leads were lacking in the case. With budget stretched, it was felt that Allison's murder was unsolvable, although Detective Farker disagreed and kept pushing to keep the case active. At 10 o'clock on Wednesday morning, the Metropolitan Police Underwater Search Unit discovered Alison Day. She was in the Riverley Navigational Cut at Hackney. They found her because they were continuing a search that had continued since uh, Sunday the 29th of December when she disappeared. What made you decide to search this particular waterway? The waterway is very close to the scene of uh, to Alison's destination and it is uh, a part of the area to be searched. We searched the whole of Hackneywick. This was just part of a general search, not you had no specific reason to believe she might be in that water? Part of a general search, that's right. Detective Chief Superintendent Farker was asked about any specific avenues the team were going to investigate. The truth is that it's very early days and you're still studying the body, is that it? That's right. Yes, it is. Now, where do you go from here? Well, we've uh, a lot of lines of inquiry left to uh, pursue. We've had a good response from the public from our our previous appeals and uh, the inquiry is still very much on. Any particular areas you're pursuing? Have you any particular ideas? No, we try and keep an open mind. I'm sorry about the cliché, but uh, there are many possibilities in this matter and we've got to look at them all. And you're still appealing for more help? 
yes, we're appealing for anybody who was between Upminster Bridge and uh, Hackney Wick on Sunday the 29th of December 1985, who may have seen Alison, um, to come forward and tell us about it. Detective Farker had to be persistent to keep the case open, despite the lack of forensic evidence. There were also absent leads, and so far there were no eyewitnesses. While there appeared to be no forensic evidence in the case, investigators theorised that the time of death was on or shortly before 8.10pm. Alison's delicate gold wristwatch, which was not waterproof, stopped working around this time. The BBC's primetime television show Crime Watch provided assistance in a televised reconstruction of Alison Day's last known movements. The programme released three theories that the police held. One supposed that someone had followed Alison onto the train. It was suggested that she used a payphone nearby to call a taxi company. The time that the call was made seemed to align with Alison's presence on the platform. The person who answered the phone recalled the conversation because the woman on the other end of the line appeared distressed when she was told there would be a delay. It was unknown if the caller deliberately put the phone down or if she had run out of change to continue the conversation. The second theory proposed that Alison got lost after the call. Only a few minutes away from her fiancé's workplace without knowing it, she was at the junction of Berkshire Road. It was postulated she took a wrong turn at this juncture and went down Wallace Road, which leads to a canal. The third theory was similar to the second. Alison walked to where her fiancé worked but went in the wrong direction when she attempted to find the entrance, again leading her to the canal. Superintendent Eric Brown, who was involved in the investigation, appeared on Crime Watch, though admitted the theories were just best guesses. There were numerous possibilities. Just over an hour was missing between when Alison asked for directions and when her watch stopped. Soon after Alison Day's body was found, advice was provided for women walking alone. Do you think other young girls in the area ought to be on the lookout? I think that uh, any women or young girls uh, should not go out alone at night to large unlit areas or industrial areas. I think that's a piece of general advice. A trap had been set along a small path near the railway line from East Horsley into London. Fishing wire had been tied across the path, meaning 15-year-old Martia Tamboza might not have seen the obstacle, potentially colliding with it on her bicycle, or she would have needed to untangle it. Either way, the unsuspecting child had to stop on the lonely path. A plan was formed by the suspect or suspects to ensnare a female victim. They had hidden behind some trees and watched as Marty rode past. After she had been knocked over, she was dragged into an adjoining field. Marty was unfortunately travelling down that path in the Surrey village of East Horsley on April 17th, 1986. In 24 hours, she would have been out of the country, far away from her eventual fate. Martia wanted to run a quick errand. She wanted to buy sweets for the journey. So she jumped on her bicycle and rode to the shop, deciding to travel to the one furthest away as she was told it had a greater variety of confectionery to choose from. Her sister Jessica was the last of her loved ones to see her alive, as Martia left school to go to the sweet shop in East Horsley. Martia Tamboza and her family were originally from Holland, but her father worked in the oil business 
bringing his family to live with him in Surrey in a large rented property. Martia was the oldest of her siblings and a pupil at the American Community School on Portsmouth Road. She had only been in the country for a year before she was killed. When Martia was found the next day, her wristwatch had stopped at 5.35pm. She was clothed, but it was apparent she had been brutalised. The teenager's belt hung around her neck. She had been gagged by her socks before being raped, strangled, and then her body was set on fire. At first, suspicions fell on the men in the village. Each was questioned, but it quickly became clear that this was not the correct avenue of investigation when no leads were found. In an effort to find the culprit or culprits, a board was tied to the railings at the local train station. The simple large font on a white background read, Murder. Martia Tamboza. Thursday, April 17th, 1986. Have you told the police everything? If not, ring Guildford. Three double one double one. Martia's body held some crucial clues about the man or men that mercilessly took her life. Three samples obtained revealed some vital information. One of the attackers was a secretor. The investigators were able to identify that through his bodily fluids, he had type A blood, a broad type of characterization that predated DNA analysis and helped include or exclude any potential suspects. Another feature that became clear from the forensic samples was that the man had a very low sperm count. The senior investigating officer was asked about the type of man the killer was. I would go as far as to say that he's a very cool, calculated individual who is prepared to take a young lady from a footpath, walk her along the side of a field, into some woods, and has been extremely calculating in everything he's done. And in my view, this man is a determined killer, and I'm fearful that he would strike again. A piece of evidence that was not made public was essential to the investigation. Detective Chief Superintendent Charles Farker did not publicly announce that a tourniquet had been used in the crimes he was investigating, fearing that the revelation would open the door to other murderers who would stage the scene to make it appear like the work of the railway killers. Detective John Hurst was leading the inquiry into Martia Tambos's murder, and he was on a different police force. But considering the similarities, the detectives decided to combine their efforts. They compared the killing of Martia with the murder of Alison Day. It was now understood Alison may have been seen talking to two men at Hackney Wick train station the night she went missing. A witness had called the police with the tip. The female had matched Alison's description, and since the platform was not busy, it was thought likely it was her. Alarmingly, the witness said they saw two men drag the female off the road. This sighting from the dark platform was helpful to police, as they now knew the attacks were being carried out by two assailants. During that point in the 1980s, the Home Office large major inquiry system known as HOMES was useful in comparing crimes and their features, but it was still in early development and had not been rolled out nationally. However, software led investigators to conclude that the murderers were also responsible for numerous rapes in and around London. Anne Locke was married in April 1986. She had a traditional wedding and wore a garland of flowers around her veil to match the blooms in her bouquet. 
It was now May 18th, and she was back from her honeymoon. The 29-year-old had left work as a secretary for London weekend television around 8.30pm, but never returned home. Her last known whereabouts were at Brookmans Park Railway Station in Hertfordshire. Anne had left her bicycle in the bike store, and she had made a call to her grandmother sometime between the hours of 7 and 8pm. Her new husband, Lawrence Locke, would address reporters three days after his wife's disappearance. We cannot understand there's any reason why anybody would want to hold her. I mean, whatever she's seen, whatever she's done, it, it, can't, it can't be important enough to keep her. Just please let her go. I mean, she, she, she's only a little girl, really. I mean, she's only my wife. You know, please let her go. She's no use to anybody. Lawrence Locke went on to praise the efforts made by the police. Um, the police have been wonderful. They, they have really moved fast. I am very, very grateful for all the help they have given us. They have searched the whole of the Brookmans Park area, done extensive and detailed searches of a vast acreage of land. The transport police have done the entire line of the the train line that she was travelling on and all the tubes and adjacent stations. Um, the Met Police, I believe, have done extensive searches of the whole Waterloo area, uh, detailed searches of the building in which she worked, and all the other ordinary checks of hospitals throughout the entire southeast of England, um, stations, uh, ports, airports, everything. They, they have completely searched out everywhere. It would be a full two months before Anne Locke's body was discovered on an embankment. The area where she was found should have been searched much earlier, but an unfortunate break in communication between Hertfordshire Police and the Metropolitan Police meant the area was not examined when it was supposed to be. Now, Anne Locke's body was found just outside the area that had been searched by Hertfordshire Police. Why wasn't that area searched? It was near the track. The search area extended uh, around the railway station concerned and went out uh, in all directions. Somewhere, someone had to decide where the search should finish. Six or more weeks were spent by a large number of officers and a large amount of resources were put into it. Sooner or later they had to stop. They couldn't search all of England and Wales. The decision was made to stop at that point and subsequently, with hindsight, um, the body of Mrs Anne Locke has been found outside that area. Due to the time that had passed since she had disappeared, Anne Locke's body had decomposed and recovering samples which could reveal a second party's DNA was almost impossible. One thing was sure without testing, however. Anne was murdered. It was eight hours later, after a full post-mortem, that Detective Superintendent Ken Worker faced journalists with a grim announcement. Death was caused through suffocation. Uh, We also believe that it is connected with some of the incidents which we're dealing with on the heart inquiry where women have been raped in London. One of Anne Locke's socks was stuffed inside her mouth and a ligature had been tied around her neck. Her hands had been tied securely around her back, but months later the binds and her clothes hung loosely over Anne's remains. The church where Anne and Lawrence Locke's wedding had taken place just a few months earlier was now the location where she was laid to rest. A picture of one of the rapists and murderers began taking shape. The police had no way of knowing that one of them was about to commit another crime, this time very close to home. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code among us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Born to Irish parents in 1958 and attending Haverstock School in North London, John Duffy went on to marry Margaret Byrne in the summer of 1980. Margaret's family did not wholly approve of the union as they did not particularly like the man she had chosen to be with. Duffy would have been 24 when the first assault was reported. He had separated from his wife earlier that year, but there was a period of time in late 1983 when the attacks ceased. This seems to coincide with the fact that Duffy had reconciled with his wife. The couple had settled down in Kilburn in northwest London, but from the start their marriage was weighed down by unhappiness. The Duffies wanted a child, but after months of trying, the couple grew concerned that something was preventing them from becoming parents. Duffy directed his frustrations at his wife, assuming their infertility problems were down to her. In the bedroom, sex became more aggressive. Duffy had to restrain Margaret with bondage equipment, tying her hands together, before he could become excited. An early sketch made of the suspect did not resemble John Duffy at all. This for a time acted as a red herring, derailing the investigation. However, many other women managed to describe their attacker to a T. As more eyewitness accounts were combined, the person the police were looking for heavily resembled John Duffy. His light blue eyes were described as cold and staring by some of the victims. He had red hair, 
a markedly scarred face from teenage acne, and he was slight in build, five foot four weighing approximately nine stone. He took his hobby of martial arts seriously, so much so he was an instructor when time afforded. John Duffy had a fixation with intricate knots and was an experienced carpenter, which he put to use working on the railways, but he was known to be unreliable. Just before the first reported rape at Hampstead Heath, Duffy had been let go from his position at British Rail for tardiness. His wife Margaret would also leave him. The violence had become too much. She briefly returned to the flat they shared, not long after moving out to collect some mail. Her former partner seemed in a chipper mood. Margaret agreed to play along with his request to sample some of his cooking, but when she closed her eyes and opened her mouth, instead of being fed, Duffy rammed a cloth inside. She managed to pull it out, and all of a sudden Duffy apologised, claiming he had no idea what had come over him. Margaret had moved on. She was living with a new partner, and Duffy's estranged wife was no longer under his control, and he knew it. When the sex attacks were at their peak in 1985, Six months before the first murder, a man broke into Margaret's home and viciously attacked and raped her. Margaret knew her attacker. It was her estranged husband. John Duffy was brought in for questioning, but little did officers know they were sitting opposite one of the railway killers. Police felt Duffy was dangerous and did not recommend bail as an option, but he was released regardless. Duffy had also previously been apprehended by police when he was found carrying a butterfly knife at Northweald Railway Station, but no action was taken. Duffy remained free, and more crimes were committed while he was on bail. This man, uh, obviously, is a person that will kill and have no conscience about it. He would have to be considered dangerous, and any reasonable person would come to that conclusion. From the evidence we have gathered, he is calm, collected, and obviously a psychopath, and takes rigorous steps to try to avoid detection. Meanwhile, the evidence was being pieced together in the railway murder and rape cases. Margaret Duffy's recent report of the attack her estranged husband committed pushed Duffy's name up the list of potential suspects. Officers were cross-referencing descriptions from witnesses and other information they had garnered from the investigation. Slowly but surely... Through alibis and physical descriptions, numerous men were eliminated from the inquiry, and one name kept popping up over and over again. John Duffy. The man's employment history as a railway carpenter could explain his fixation with intricate knots and his knowledge of the railway system. Behavioural profiling had been utilised for one of the first times in the UK to build a picture of the person committing such awful acts. The profile was pieced together by Professor David Cantor. This had afforded investigators a possible starting point to narrow down their list of suspects. Unbeknownst to the team working on the case, Cantor's report was highly accurate. Pinpointing the suspect's home, Cantor theorised that the man lived in Cricklewood or Kilburn. John Duffy did in fact live in Kilburn. The professor also offered insight when he said that the suspect was married with no children and that the marriage was in trouble. The person they were looking for was thought to be, quote, 
physically small and unattractive. A man that liked to dominate women and had violent sexual fantasies involving bondage. Professor David Cantor even predicted that the perpetrator of the shocking crimes was either active in weightlifting or martial arts. Duffy was accomplished in the latter. As he had been placed on the sex offenders register for the attack on his wife, John Duffy was the prime suspect, and after a search of his home turned up fibres linked to Alison Day's clothing, he was finally charged with three counts of murder and more than a dozen rapes. The trial began in early 1988. However, just before the legal proceedings commenced, the judge received a request from the press asking that the ban on John Duffy's name being printed be lifted. Then, in a rape case, he would have been afforded anonymity until a verdict was reached. Due to Duffy also being tried for three murders, Judge Mr Justice Farkerson agreed to the defendant's name being published despite arguments from Duffy's defence counsel. 30-year-old John Duffy denied the murders of Alison Day, Martia Tamboza and Anne Locke. He also pleaded not guilty to the 14 rapes he was charged with, allegedly committed from June 1984 to October 1986. Margaret Duffy, the former wife of the accused, took to the stand and painted a picture of Duffy's demands and the abuse in their marriage. The defendant was insistent the couple had sex every night, and if Margaret declined, Duffy persisted, pressuring her to have intercourse. She noted that he was more excited when he tied her up, although he began to lose interest when Margaret would not enthusiastically respond. It was obvious that he got more aroused when she tried to make him stop. It would eventually reach a point where Margaret could no longer stand her husband touching her. She described the incident when they had separated, and she returned to the flat they had shared to collect some belongings. She entertained a request of Duffy's to keep the peace when he asked her to try something he had cooked before Duffy grabbed Margaret's throat, unsuccessfully restraining her and forcing a handkerchief into her mouth. Anlock's husband, Lawrence, also took the stand. He spoke about the loss of his wife, but Lawrence Locke was about to be hit with a second emotional blow when his father collapsed outside. He had suffered a heart attack, and later passed away in hospital. Anne Locke's mother and father had both died before Anne had been murdered. Her grandmother, her husband Lawrence and her best friend Leslie had been her support network when she was alive. Frustratingly for Anne Locke's loved ones and the prosecution, during the trial, the jury would be advised by the judge to find John Duffy not guilty of her murder. It was simply down to the strength of the evidence, a fact the prosecution had to agree with. The time that had passed between the crime and the discovery of Anne's remains had made both analysing Anne's body and the surrounding scene impossible. Investigators would have been more successful had Anne been found sooner. Amongst the survivors of the attacks were teenagers, children. The last of the reported assaults and rapes was against a 14-year-old. The girl was on her way home from school near Watford on October 21st, 1986, when Duffy pounced and forced her into a nearby woods at knife point. As he had done many times before, he incapacitated her by binding her hands with her tights 
and carried out the heinous act against a tree. One female who was 17 at the time of the trial and worked as an auxiliary nurse gave evidence of a horrific encounter at Hadley Wood Station near the end of February 1985. A ginger man approached the girl and inquired about train times. He engineered this conversation so he could be as close to the girl as possible and he could wrap his arm around her neck and threaten her with a knife. She could not escape, and the assailant dragged the petrified teenager across the track and raped her in the brambles. The 17-year-old recalled him wearing a tracksuit and hood. After the attack, the man inquired if she had considered taking a self-defence class. The prosecution argued that the perpetrator was John Duffy. As the jury made up of six men and six women retired to decide their verdicts, John Duffy was led from the courtroom. As he walked by, his family made encouraging hand gestures to him from the gallery. By the time the verdict came in, Anne Locke's bereft husband had travelled abroad, hoping to never hear any mention of the trial. On Friday, February 26th, John Duffy sat still, silent and emotionless, as he was found guilty on count after count. In total, Duffy was found guilty of two counts of murder for the killings of Alison Day and Martia Tamboza, and five counts of rape. Judge Mr. Justice Farkerson told Duffy that he was a disgusting animal that had attacked girls and women in a degrading and disgusting way. Quote, The two murders were appalling as anything I have come across. The wickedness and beastliness of the murders committed on those two very young girls hardly bears description. To neighbours, he was quiet, inoffensive, polite, in fact to many, insignificant and weedy. Yet ginger-haired Duffy, just five foot four inches tall, became one of history's worst sex killers, said by his victims to have laser beam eyes. He was involved in running the local community centre and, ironically, some women there even looked to his martial arts skills to protect them from muggers. John Duffy's siblings and parents had attended the legal proceedings. When the sentence was read aloud, his mother wept. Her husband and Duffy's older sister Susan, who was also in tears, led her out of the courtroom. Jimmy, John Duffy's younger brother, remained in the courtroom and was permitted a fleeting exchange with his brother before Duffy was taken to prison to start his 30-year sentence. John Duffy's family had been certain of his innocence, his parents failing to believe their middle child could be capable of such vicious acts. One police officer stated, I feel really sorry for Duffy's parents. They are a really nice couple. Due to the publicity of the case and its nature, particularly as he attacked children, John Duffy began his life sentence alone in solitary confinement. Head of Surrey CID, Superintendent John Hurst, describes Duffy's tools for terror box of matches and uh, some tissues inside a match which was his rape kit the anarchist cookbook showing uh, ways to deal with people and tie people up and and martial arts type things from the anarchist cookbook duffy learned garroting techniques and the value of always having escape routes he'd watch horror videos like jaws of the dragon that showed people being strangled his zen buddha classes taught him painful and paralyzing methods of attack he would tie some of his victims with John Duffy behind bars for at least three decades and the 28-month spree of rapes and killings grinding to a halt, the women using the train lines in and around London began to feel more confident when travelling alone. 
The accomplice to many of the crimes, including the murders, was still unknown and free to carry on his life as usual. Duffy had remained tight-lipped about the identity of his cohort, and it seemed unlikely his stance would change. That was until nine years after his conviction. John Duffy had previously claimed that he could not remember the years when the murders and rapes occurred, but finally broke his silence in 1997. Suddenly, Duffy's memory was sharp enough to implicate David Mulcahy to a prison psychiatrist. John Duffy and Mulcahy had been lifelong friends. In fact, Duffy was his only friend. Mulcahy had been brought in for questioning during the original investigation, but there was not enough evidence to keep him in custody, and so he was released. Duffy had confessed to psychologist Dr. Jenny Cutler that he and his friend had raped two au pairs on Hampstead Heath in North London. Off the back of John Duffy's admission, a cold case team set up a new investigation. Unbeknownst to Duffy, the police had had a breakthrough. Many women reported two rapists, not just one, and DNA from another suspect had been left behind. DNA analysis had come a long way since the 1980s. Although Mulcahy he was tested and cleared for a separate spate of rapes in the area, a new set of tests would link him to the attacks committed with Duffy in the 1980s. It was said that John Duffy was put out because his friend, whom he met in school, had not visited him since his arrest. Mulcahy was getting on with his life on the outside with a wife and children, while Duffy was resigned to spending the rest of his life in prison. Duffy also claimed to feel bad about his crimes and was said to be experiencing nightmares, which had led him to seek help from a psychiatrist. John Duffy and David Mulcahy's paths had crossed in the mid-1970s. Mulcahy was passionate about roller skating and was interviewed about the pursuit in later life. Can't. It's like a drug you can't give out. Once you start and you get into it, that's it, you hook. But if you've got a cab, you drive around and what do you want wheels on your feet for? More fun. A cab's conventional, boring. This, interesting. John Duffy and David Mulcahy both had an interest in martial arts, and soon it became clear that they both had a taste for violence. The next sentence mentions animal abuse, so if you would prefer not to hear the details, please skip ahead ten seconds. In a sickening incident, Mulcahy killed a hedgehog by stamping on the creature's head, causing his suspension from Haverstock Hill Comprehensive in North London. When Duffy and Mulcahy were fresh-faced teenagers, they had supposedly discussed an act that inspired the years of rapes and murders. Mulcahy was frustrated. Someone had agitated him, the resident of a property he was helping fix. Instead of forgetting or even talking through his difficult day at work with his friend, John Duffy said the woman should be taught a lesson. Duffy suggested they should sexually assault her. The pair spent an evening hiding in the dark at her home, waiting for the woman to return so they could pounce. They had planned every step in detail, but they did not consider she would not be coming home that night. Luckily, Mulcahy and Duffy left. They would abandon this particular plan, but it had not put them off the idea of sexual attacks. Their brutal and predatory bond was so strong they were later described as two men with one brain. 
Mulcahy and Duffy were said to have played Michael Jackson's Thriller album during their quote, hunting expeditions. David Mulcahy denied three counts of murder, including that of Anne Locke, and 12 counts of rape and conspiracy to rape. John Duffy, the key witness, spent two weeks in the witness box confessing to his crimes and fully implicating Mulcahy, who had been his best friend since the first day of school. Duffy said, There is a lot of self-hate for what I have done. I feel a lot of guilt. I have raped and killed young ladies. I accept that. I'm not trying to shift the blame. I did what I did. Duffy described how he wanted to get on with my life in the system. To make a fresh start, I know I will die in prison. John Duffy's former wife Margaret provided testimony and told the court that her former partner often disappeared at night for many hours, mostly with his friend David Mulcahy. She also told the court that her ex-husband carried a knife and recalled him gifting her a stereo before they separated. Bizarrely, Duffy told his then-wife that he had taken it from a woman he had raped. Margaret said regarding his comment, I thought he was just trying to get a reaction. Mark Dennis, QC prosecuting, explained that fearing Alison Day could identify them, it was David Mulcahy who took out a knife, cut up her blouse and put a tourniquet around her neck. The prosecutor went on to say it was Mulcahy that had suggested murder, telling the court, He justified the killing to Duffy, saying they would be done for attempted murder anyway. Mark Dennis QC argued that Duffy had been pressured by his friend to commit the killing. Quote, Moments later, no doubt fearing Duffy's reticence, he told Duffy they were in it together. He told Duffy to take hold of the tourniquet and give it a twist. He said they had no choice. It was the right thing to do. The description of Alison Day's last hour alive was harrowing. Duffy and Mulcahy paused during the sexual assault, according to Duffy, when a male walked by. They then carried on undetected. Duffy said it was his friend that led the petrified Allison across the bridge and forcibly pushed the young woman into the icy water. Before he did so, Allison knew what was coming, and she shouted, No, no. John Duffy made out to the court he played the more passive role by getting Allison Day out of the water. She tried to flee from her attackers they would not let her go, catching up to the young woman to rape her yet again. Duffy put the blame for this last act of terror on Mulcahy, removing himself from the awful scenario. The witness explained to the court that it was his friend's idea to murder the witness in case she recognised them. The pair had already been questioned separately about a string of rapes, and they were edgy about the situation. They discussed their intentions openly in front of Alison. She tried desperately to get them to spare her life by saying she would not report what had happened, suggesting she could not recognise them if she was asked what they looked like. However, surprisingly, it was John Duffy that admitted to ending Alison Day's life. I can't explain it. I just did it, he said. Teenager Martia Tamboza met an equally horrific end at the hands of John Duffy and David Mulcahy. Apparently Mulcahy had said his friend could, quote, go first. Again, according to Duffy, 
Mulcahy got angry and spooked after the initial assault, claiming that the schoolgirl would be able to recognise him as he felt she was staring at him. The poor teenager was struck across the head. Duffy said his accomplice was excited about what he had done, claiming he felt almost godlike when making a decision between life and death. Describing how Mulcahy carried out the killing, Duffy said, he raised his fists and hit the girl. She crumpled to the floor. She was struck on the head. It was a swinging blow. I noticed he had a rock or stone in his hand. He ripped her belt off. He put it around the girl's neck and said it would make it easy for me. He got hysterical. The pair left the scene but once again got jittery and returned to crudely dispose of any potential evidence by using a cloth to try and remove fingerprints before attempting to set the victim's body alight. David Mulcahy and John Duffy knew the bicycle and lock used to get to work belonged to a female. They moved it to a more sheltered spot, so when its owner went looking for it, she was in a vulnerable position. Tragically, their plan worked, and they raped and murdered Anne Locke. At John Duffy's trial a decade before, a conviction for Anne's murder had been dismissed so he could not be tried again for murder, but he had since confessed, implicating his lifelong friend in the crime. Although Duffy admitted that he raped Anne, he said Mulcahy had been the one to end her life. followed by one of the longest ever single defendant murder trials in British criminal history. David Mulcahy was found guilty and handed three life sentences for murdering Alison Day, Martia Tamboza and Anne Locke. In addition to the murder convictions, he was found guilty of seven rapes and five attempted rapes. Like Duffy, David Mulcahy faced a minimum of 30 years in prison. With all the press over the years relating to the case and David Mulcahy being identified as the second attacker, more women came forward to the police, believing they had been raped by Mulcahy or John Duffy, or both of them. A total of 18 in all. The dates of the crimes covered more than two years before the pair were thought to be active and possibly two years after Duffy was convicted. A 12-year period between 1978 to 1990. So where are we now? John Duffy's former wife Margaret managed to move on with her life. She remarried and started a family, something she always wanted. She gave birth to a son in the late 1980s. Even though John Duffy and David Mulcahy were now solidly implicated in Anlock's murder, the double jeopardy law at the time meant that Duffy could not be tried a second time for the crime. And Locke's loved ones had to live with the turmoil of knowing who killed Anne, while also knowing Duffy would never be prosecuted for her murder. However, in 2001, he would admit to a further 17 sex attacks, including that of Anne Locke although Duffy said he could barely remember how many women he had raped. An additional 12 years was added to the time he was to spend behind bars. But while in prison, John Duffy was told his sentence would be increased to a life tariff, 
and he is one of the small number of prisoners that will never be released. David Mulcahy planned to appeal his conviction in 2015. However, following a request for 6,000 documents from Scotland Yard, the submission was declined. Mulcahy briefly appeared in the press again in 2020. From behind bars, he had spent a total of 2,000 hours making a Formula One car out of matchsticks. He entered it into the Kessler Arts Prison Awards and won a bronze prize of £20 for his efforts. The media took an interest in the incident when the matchstick car was misplaced after it was entered into the competition. Mulcahy thought it was stolen after being displayed at the South Bank Centre in London. He wrote to a prison magazine from HMP Full Sutton about how previous exhibits he had constructed had also been damaged. Mulcahy boasted about his previous awards and pondered a legal route to get compensation for the loss of his artwork. Unlike John Duffy, David Mulcahy was not handed a life tariff. He can apply for parole in 2031 when he is in his early 70s. As he still protests his innocence, many believe David Mulcahy will never see the outside world again. Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.